In the summer of 1911, in a small town in Wyoming, which had only become a state 21 years prior, a new baseball team took to the field. They were called the All-Stars, and even though they only ended up playing four games, there was something incredibly unique about these 12 men. You see, the All-Stars were the official team of Wyoming State Prison and every player was on death row. And even though they only ended up playing four games, they won every one of them. Because for the players on the Wyoming State All-Stars, the longer they won, the longer they stayed alive. You're listening to Hidden History, and this is episode 61. Oh, death. Thanks for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Ellis Tucci, and for this episode, I suppose I've set a rather large and nebulous goal for myself. If you think that I do a good job with it, then I'd love it if you subscribe to the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to it. Hell, if you want, you can tell your friends about it. That would be pretty cool. If you have any feedback about this episode or the show in general, you can shoot me a tweet. My handle is at Ellis A. Tucci. So now with that lead out of the way, what exactly is this episode going to be about? So I'm going to try and narrow that down and maybe create a sort of stand-in relationship by talking about the role that capital punishment plays in American society and looking at that through the lens of both the Wyoming State All-Stars and of a 14-year-old boy named George Stinney. Now, if that didn't give it away, here's a warning that this episode might not be suitable for younger listeners. So, I want to start out this show by filling you in on the rest of the story of the Death Row All-Stars. It's a story that, in reality, starts with the 1901 opening of the Wyoming State Penitentiary in a small town called Rollins. But in order to really give adequate context towards what's to come, I need to first talk about the regard for the law on the American frontier before the establishment of a regulated prison system. Unsurprisingly, in the small town of Rollins that takes the form of brutal frontier justice. In 1878, there was this guy named George Parrott who had the unfortunate nickname Big Beak. He was a cattle rustler and a highwayman, and he decided, as one does on the frontier, that it would be a good idea to rob a train. In the process, he killed a Wyoming sheriff's deputy and a Union Pacific detective. He and his gang got away with it, but earned a $20,000 bounty on their heads, which is approximately $530,2019. Two years later, they're captured in Miles City, Montana, and he is sent back to Rollins and sentenced to death by hanging, with the execution date set for April 2nd, 1881. But he wouldn't make it that long. After a botched escape attempt on March 22nd, a group of masked townspeople stormed into the prison and released him. His saviors, however, had alternative motives. They released him all right, into the hands of the 200-member lynch mob waiting outside. 
they strung up Big Beak George from a telegraph pole. After he died, the people of Rollins skinned him and made a medical bag and a pair of leather shoes out of the remains of George Parrott. Dr. John Osborne wore those shoes to the formal ball celebrating his inauguration as governor of Wyoming. His skull was turned into an ashtray and a doorstop. Now, the case of George Parrott wasn't exactly out of the ordinary on the American frontier. It wasn't even out of the ordinary in Rollins. And I'd like to say that the opening of the Wyoming State Penitentiary in 1901 ushered in sweeping criminal justice reforms that recognized the humanity of the imprisoned. But that's not true. You see... The state contracted a local politician, judge, and entrepreneur named Otto Graham to oversee prison operations. Graham then decided to put the prisoners to work, with no compensation, in a broom factory established inside the jailhouse walls. Not only did Otto get paid 57 cents a day per prisoner, the equivalent of about $15, but he also got to keep everything that he made selling his brooms. In an attempt to maximize his profit margins, he gave the inmates just the amount of food that they needed to prevent total starvation. Conditions inside the prison were compared to the Dark Ages. The difference between life during the early years at Wyoming State and our modern system of prison labor is admittedly quite slim. But then in 1911, a new warden named Felix Alston took over. Conditions at the prison improved moderately. Prisoners now had the chance to get outside the walls by manually building roads. More importantly, prisoners now had a chance to exercise. They now had a chance to play baseball. They began their four-game run that July made up entirely of inmates who were to die behind the walls of Wyoming State Penitentiary. Five were robbers, three murderers, three rapists, and one a simple forger. They took to the field against another local team and began to play for their lives. Winning would result in stays of execution, individually identifiable actions that cost the team the game, would result in death. The incredible pressure placed on these men created quite a spectacle for onlookers. It turned out these men were good at baseball, and as they moved from game to game, the mental stakes on the field grew ever higher. Outside the diamond, the financial stakes grew as well. People from the surrounding area took great excitement from betting on the results of each game from betting on the fates of these twelve men. Eventually, their time ran out. By the end of August, Felix Alston began thinking about replacing the baseball program with prison education initiatives. The Wyoming State All-Stars would not be afforded any more opportunities to postpone the inevitable. And one by one, they disappeared to the gallows. In the following years, the story of 12 men playing baseball for their lives was largely forgotten. It's only broadly returned to the American collective consciousness within the past 10 years. 
A lot of the research for this section has come from the 2014 book by Howard Kazanajan and Chris Entz called The Death Row All-Stars, a story of baseball, corruption, and murder. The story, even though we're separated from it by 109 years, is, I think, incredibly important in developing an understanding of the legacy of the U.S. penal system. I did an episode last year, number 40, called Acres of Skin, where I talk about human experimentation in the mid-1900s at a prison in Philadelphia. And if you take those two very separate stories, then it becomes abundantly clear that suffering is not the exception in the American prison. It's the expectation. Our prison's obviously don't exist to rehabilitate. They exist to torture, to force penitence through the universal application of physical and mental suffering. And if you think I'm exaggerating here, then I'm sorry, but you're uninformed. Uh, in, in West Virginia, right now, prisoners earn 37 cents an hour for their work. And if they want to read a book, that's going to cost them three cents per minute. Let, let's, let's just think about that. The average novel is between 60 and 100,000 words. So let's call it a cool 80,000. If you are a completely average reader, you can work through about 300 of those words per minute. That means it's going to take about five hours to read that average book. If you're a prisoner in West Virginia, assuming you pick a completely average book and are a completely average reader, it's going to take you 40 and a half hours to be able to earn enough money to read one book. Books that the West Virginia prison system gets off of Project Gutenberg, which is free to use. Such a system could not in any good faith be represented by someone as aiding in the rehabilitation of the state's prison population. It exists to control, exploit, dehumanize, and humiliate. In 2018, if you called the North Carolina Tourism Bureau for travel information on the Tar Heel State, you were speaking to an inmate at the Raleigh Woman's Prison who never travels outside the wire. If you were called by the Mike Bloomberg campaign this past December, you were speaking to an inmate in Oklahoma. But I don't want to go too far off tangent. This episode is supposed to be about death. And so now I'm going to talk a bit about the relationship between American society, our justice system, and the particular social indifference towards the deaths of black people. And to do that, I could talk about Terence Franklin, Miles Hall, John Burrius, Darius Tarver, William Green, or Samuel Mallard. I could talk about Kwame Jones, or Devon Bailey, or Eric Garner, or Anthony Hill, or Eric Logan, or Jamarian Robinson. I could talk about Ryan Timwin, Brandon Weber, Willie McCoy, Jamel Robertson, or DeAndre Ballard. I could talk about Emmett Till. Today, I'm going to talk about George Stinney Jr. On the morning of March 23rd, 1944, the bodies of two young girls 
17111, were found in a ditch outside the mill town of Alcolu, South Carolina. George Stinney, who was 14 years old, as well as his older brother, were arrested as suspects. The Alcolu police said that Stinney confessed to the crime while in custody. There was never an interrogation transcript, and there was no confession. There was only the word of the deputy sheriff, H.S. Newman. Stinney had no lawyers at his questioning, and his parents had been forbidden from seeing him. In fact, his parents were intentionally kept away from the young boy, just barely a teenager, until after the trial and the conviction. When the trial day came, he was represented by a local politician, Charles Plowden, who was in the process of seeking election to public office. As a result, George Stinney's counsel didn't ask a single question during the entire trial and chose not to cross-examine any of the witnesses, even, even when they gave conflicting testimony. George Stinney's counsel didn't object when the prosecution created new lies on the spot, accusing him of raping the two girls before he murdered them, even though the medical examination gave no such indication. The trial proceedings lasted two and a half hours. In ten minutes, the jury returned with their verdict. Guilty. Philip Stoll, the, the presiding judge, sensed him to execution by electric chair. People from all around the state, as well as the national of the NAACP, urged South Carolina's governor, Olin Johnston, who would serve until 1965, for a pardon due to George's exceptionally young age. Governor Johnston denied the appeal and sent George Stenney to his death. His parents were allowed only one visit. On the night of June 16, 1944, a 14-year-old boy was sent to the electric chair. He was but an inch over five foot. He didn't even weigh a hundred pounds. When the guards strapped him to the chair, he had to sit on top of a Bible. He was too short. They placed an adult-sized mask over his face. His father could no longer see him crying. At 7.35 p.m. on June the 16th, 1944, George Stinney became the youngest person to ever be executed in the United States. He was entirely innocent. That conviction that took an all-white jury ten minutes, was vacated in 2014, 70 years too late. Black Americans make up 13% of the American population. But according to the Death Penalty Information Center, they make up 41.6% of death row inmates. Black and white Americans commit crime at the same rate. So with that in mind, what could it mean when 13% of America represents 41% of death row? Well, white Americans, 77% of the population, make up just 42. Well, to me, 
That would seem to suggest that the American justice system has a structural racial bias and inflicts far greater punishment on black Americans for far lesser crimes. But that's not a really shocking revelation. But let me try and answer that larger question at the beginning of this episode. What does the American relationship with the death penalty say about American society? I think that ultimately it says that our society is an inhumanely cruel one. That we revel in the suffering of others. That we lack empathy for every situation unless it's happening to us. Now, is that a somewhat cynical stance? Maybe. I don't know. What I do know is that if you want to change the world around us, if you believe that a better world is possible, then I have just one question to ask you. Are you willing to fight for someone that you don't know as much as you're willing to fight for yourself? Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.